What's going on, everyone? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield, the host of the Seeking Excellence podcast, where we apply faith and reason to the opportunities and obstacles and challenges of everyday life. And so here we're focusing on living a life of excellence. The central pillar of the seven pillars of excellence is the spiritual pillar. It is the most important aspect of it. A central part to Christianity and being spiritually excellent is repentance. 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 I knew I could say it. So repenting, repent and believe in the gospel. We a lot of times don't like to put that out there. A lot of Christian churches today have just made it just believe in the gospel. There's no need for repentance. And there's a lot of heresy out there around that. And so today we're going to be talking about what repentance looks like. We're going to be talking about a biblical story where I'm going to go into details and kind of give a great example um, from a, a biblical legend about repentance. And so um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this to you today. I hope that you go through this with an open mind, open heart. And we'll listen to whatever God has for you in the story. I try to break down it as well. Ways that I listen, I read scripture. I think a lot of us out there, maybe you're somebody who you don't read a lot of scripture as you pray. Um, and I just think that there's going to be a revival of that. I think that um, sometimes the Protestant focus on that is their biggest strength. I think that too many Catholics do not read scripture. And we kind of take it as like this joke of like the Catholic culture is we don't read scripture. But I think that that's uh, mistaken. I think that that's a, a bad habit to get into is just not reading scripture, not being familiar with it. So I try to give some breakdown and some insight into the way that I read it, and how I apply it to my life and why I find it so valuable. And so I hope that that'll be helpful for you as you check this out today. Um, and I just want to encourage you again, if you haven't already, come and join us on Locals at CKXs.Locals.com. You already know the link is in the description, but I'd love to have you. I'd also love for you to subscribe to us on YouTube. I have made many gains in my uh, video quality and the, the quality of the videos we're putting out there. And so come check it out on YouTube. Um, I had a different setup for today's episode that you'll see in a second if you are watching this on video uh, that I'm very excited about. And so um, check us out on YouTube, check us out on Locals. You can get access to exclusive videos and content. And very soon here, I think within a week, we're going to be starting our um, our book club. And so that is going to be awesome. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. Right, so today we're going to be talking about repentance. And repentance obviously isn't something that's very popular to talk about. It's not a very uh, light topic. It's not an easy topic to discuss. But what, what this kind of came from for me was I shared my testimony in RCIA a couple weeks ago. And part of that was leading prayer beforehand. And so every week with prayer in RCIA class, we go over a different psalm. And so I chose Psalm 51, which is I don't know if it's my favorite psalm, if that's the right term I would use, but it's definitely my most prayed psalm. And so I decided to go through that. And if you know a lot about my life, I think I might have shared this in my my testimony, you know, sharing my story. But I actually chose King David as my confirmation saint. Kind of rare, kind of weird, but I love King David. He's one of my favorite people ever. Definitely one of my favorite Old Testament figures. And so it was really a blessing to have him as my confirmation saint. And there's lots of stories in First and Second Samuel that I love from King David. And obviously King David wrote a lot of the Psalms. But this story specifically always really stuck with me. I think part of what I loved about him was he struggled with a lot of the same things I did, um, whether that was um, being doubted, whether that was having to overcome major obstacles in life with Goliath, um, being hated at different times in his life, sometimes justified, sometimes not, struggling with lust and sin, and having to get back up after some major sin. And for me, I just really appreciated that. Same thing with my love for St. Augustine. And uh, I think it's important to note, I get this question a lot after I speak and share my testimony specifically, where people ask me, you know, Nathan, do you have to have a testimony like yours, you have to kind of go extreme. You have to be 
in a very sinful place in order to have a good testimony or a good story to be a good evangelist? And I, I feel like that answer is emphatically no. And so I, I just want to reiterate that and, and kind of affirm you in that. If you're somebody who has not had a really crazy testimony, that is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to not have struggled with sexual sin, um, extreme anger, whatever it might be. You know, you don't have to be an alcoholic, drug addict. Like those stories are cool to see how God works in people's lives. But if you don't have that, it doesn't mean you have to feel bad or worse. You know, I think somebody just recently said to me that God has St. Augustine's who were, you know, he's lived a very pleasure-driven lifestyle before converting. Then he also has St. Thomas Aquinas who is known for being pure and, and chase his entire life. And so it's beautiful that we have this mix, right? You have the same thing goes with um, Old Testament figures, right? You have people who were um, absolutely crushed it. And then you have people who were um, super, super on the struggle bus. And you see how God uses both types of people. And I think that's a beautiful thing to think about how God uses different types of people in different ways. All right, I needed a quick camera adjustment there. So I'm going to read... Uh, you know, through some of this story today, I'm going to be reading some scripture um, and then just kind of offer some commentary on it, just kind of explaining how it's impacted my life and what I think it has to share or has to teach us when we are going through different experiences in life. But just to give more context, obviously, most of you are going to know this, um, how King David kind of got to this point. But I think it is something that I often over-exaggerate or over-assume how much people really do know about the scriptures. And so I don't want to do that today, but just to give some background, um, and this is, I always think this is fun, you know, Bible story with Nathan is always an experience because I like to give kind of my own interpretation of things um, as I recap the story. And so just going back, you know, um, the Israelites asked for a king and God, you know, through prophets was just like, that's a bad idea. You don't want to do that. Don't, you know, strive to, or ask God to give you a king. You don't know what that's going to be like. It's going to be a struggle. You're going to suffer. You're going to have bad kings. And they were like, no, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so God gives them King Saul. King Saul's not really working out that great. And so they're like, we want a different king, right? And so um, uh, the prophet Samuel is is looking around and trying to find who it is the Lord wants him to anoint as the next king, because he's kind of like the the OG prophet. So he's the one that anoints the kings. and. He goes to the house of Jesse. So Jesse's a father. He's got a bunch of sons. And uh, Samuel, the prophet, thinks that the king is here. And so he goes and, and Jesse presents him one son at a time, right? Starting with the oldest. And he shows him all of them. And he's like, is that all, is that all your sons? He's like, I didn't feel like God wanted me to anoint any of them. And he's like, I'm really confused. And Jesse's like, well, there is one more. And it's David, his young son, who is not a warrior. He's young, he's little, and he's out tending the sheep because he was a shepherd. And so uh, Samuel's like, well, dummy, go get him. Like I said, bring all your kids. Why are you playing games? And so uh, Samuel's like, or, or Jesse's like, all right, bet, go get, go get David. And so they go get David, they bring him back, and he's like, this is the one. And all the brothers are pissed. It's kind of similar to Joseph. I've always really um, loved Joseph as well because he you know, was the second youngest of his 12 brothers. And I, I had a lot of issues with my siblings growing up of feeling like I, at certain points, was either actually my dad's favorite or was at least seen as my dad's favorite. And I think that it caused a lot of jealousy and put enmity, enmity between me and my siblings um, and was, yeah, just kind of tough. And so I, I really related to Joseph and King David in that way as well. And so David gets anointed king, but King Saul is still king. Um, you know, and so shortly after this, you have the David and Goliath story. Then uh, David is kind of enlisted in the soldiers and, and given, you know, armies to wage war on behalf of King Saul, and he's crushing it. And King Saul gets really jealous of him and then tries to kill David. God delivers him from King Saul. Uh, and eventually he becomes king because Saul dies. Um, and there's a lot that happens in between <laughs> that I just kind of skipped over there, but that just kind of gets you up to where we are now, right? So King David is is a known warrior, a known savage. Um, he's already proven himself in battle many times. And so now they find themselves at war again. And so I'm going to pick up um, now. 
here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so that's something that's really interesting. So you can hear it in the text, but I think it's always just important to really emphasize this fact that this was the time when kings go forth to battle. So back then, this wasn't like, you know, your modern day presidents that, you know, will visit the war zone for two days at a time. This is like back when generals and kings like were in the front lines, right? They were really leading the charge when it came to war. And so that's really important to note. All right. So then it picks back up. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking up the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people fared, and how the war prospered. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now, what I think gets really interesting here is you get this kind of experience, like you'll hear Jordan Peterson talk about this a lot when he when he talks about telling the truth, the need to tell the truth. And I think what's, what's critical to recognize is David did this horrible thing, right? He had this sin, he committed adultery. Um, understand that, that David at this point is already married. Obviously Bathsheba is married. So they commit adultery together. And he's like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll get Uriah to come home now that his wife is pregnant. Um, he wants to try to cover it up. And so you can see here, there's this interesting thing um, that is already interesting, obviously, in the fact that David is not out at battle where the kings are supposed to be. So I think especially for men, but I think people in general, there's something really powerful to, are you taking care of your daily tasks? Are you showing up where you're supposed to be? Because if you're showing up where you're supposed to be and doing the things that God has given you to do through your vocation, then you're going to be in a better place, right? You're going to be more safe against temptations to sin. It's amazing how when we find ourselves, uh, and I think you can experience this a lot with chastity, whether it's by yourself or with a significant other, that when you find yourselves not doing what you're supposed to do, you put yourself in the near occasion of sin, right? Um then you're going to be more likely to uh, fall into sin and fall into these traps and fall into the traps of the devil. It's kind of like the the classic, the, the phrase that like an idle mind is the devil's workshop, right? When we're not really doing anything, that's when we're most likely to fall into sin. And we have this temptation, I think, today to, to think of busyness as a replacement for doing good things, right? Because we just stay so busy all the time, but then we usually just kind of like, just we have this binge culture, right? Whether you're binging TV or binge eating, binge drinking, we have this kind of like we go really, really hard, and then we just try to like just totally veg out, like on the couch all day. And that's where I think we find ourselves getting into a lot of trouble, is when we do kind of have this idle mind and and uh, 
we're not really like filling ourselves with good things and putting good things on the calendar and having good active rest and good active recovery. I mean, going on walks, spending time with good people, spending time in prayer, reading, right? Not just watching inappropriate shows on Netflix and things like that. And so there's something to the fact that David is already messed up because he's not where he's supposed to be. He's not out doing the things that he's supposed to be doing, leading the people he's supposed to be leading. Instead, he's just kind of taking some time off and some undeserved time off because you can see this juxtaposition here between David and Uriah, where Uriah comes back from battle and is like, I don't know why I'm here other than the fact that the king called me back. He called me back and he's the king, so I have to go. But he's like, even though I'm, you know, two blocks from home, I'm not about to sit up here. And while all my men, and I don't know if he was a leader or if he's just kind of a a colleague, you know, a peer of a lot of these soldiers, but he's like, they're all sleeping out in the field. How am I going to be up in here, you know, taking it easy? And I've had that experience myself as a soldier. You know, you have this, this camaraderie where you want to be suffering together. And not all of us are, are virtuous enough to do this, right? A lot of us, whenever we get the opportunity to skip out on some suffering, we're going to do that. We're just going to take that opportunity and take advantage of that. And we're constantly making our lives easier. And I, I heard this really powerful part in, um, I'm going through the Imitation of Christ Challenge in Hallow right now. And there was this really interesting section today that I think was about the, I mean, he gets really, he gets really savage in that, right? Thomas Akempis, he gets pretty dark at times. And he's talking about the, the um, just the internal damnation for, for sinners. And he's like, you, he's like, if you have avoided every discomfort in this life, which you probably have, if you're on your way to hell, you're just constantly seeking pleasure. How are you going to deal with eternal discomfort and pain and suffering that is unlike anything we ever can even imagine experiencing here on earth? And I think that's a really interesting, really interesting point. Um, we see this in our own lives, right? When you're just constantly avoiding the pain that you're supposed to go through, right? There's one thing to avoid, you know, unnecessary suffering. Um, but there's also something to inflicting. And I mean, avoiding unnecessary suffering, especially through sin, because sin obviously brings about unnecessary suffering. Um, bad decisions brings about unnecessary suffering. But um, there is good unnecessary suffering as well, right? It's not necessary to take cold showers. It's not necessary to abstain from meat on Fridays. Um, making some of these little sacrifices that aren't necessary but are for the good, right? That can be very good for you. And I think sometimes we don't um, appreciate that enough. And think about how can I subject myself to good suffering that will bring about a good in my life and the life of other people, right? Through prayer and fasting and things like that. Uh, instead, we find ourselves being like King David here, where we're just like, um, even the things we're called to, you know, necessary suffering. I would say that as a king, it's necessary suffering to be out there leading your your soldiers. And sometimes we even avoid that, right? Um, we can avoid some of these difficult things, difficult conversations with a loved one, waking up early to go to mass. I've been struggling with that so much lately, trying to go to daily mass and just like not getting up on time or not prioritizing my time and getting enough done during my workday so I don't have to start working at 7 a.m. Just being mindful of my calendar and saying no to certain things and saying no to different opportunities and fun opportunities to go do stuff and having some good necessary suffering. I think we don't like to ask God, what do you want from me in this phase of my life? Because we don't always want to hear the answer to that. And so I think this is very interesting. And so the other reason why I wanted to do this episode, I hope this is helpful. And I don't know how many people, you guys might hate this. You might enjoy this. I don't think I've ever really done an episode like this before. But I wanted to do it as well because I think that it, or at least I hope that it is, for those of you who are not um, frequently reading Scripture or praying with Scripture, these are the things that were so life-changing for me. And this is the way that I I read it, right? Is I'll typically not necessarily break as often as I'm breaking now, given kind of a throughout commentary. But usually I'll read the whole story through, but then kind of go back to these different points. And I start to think of like, um, evaluating it similar to my own life, right? Of, okay, if somebody's sitting in this situation, does this reveal something about man or about God, right? And I think in this in this part, we're learning about man, right? The, the sins of a man. Um, and, and so many times, right? Like the, the path to sin is, is well paved, you know, is well trodden. And so what I mean by that is that 
I, I often talk about this when you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with sexual sin or drinking, whatever it might be, anger, um, jealousy, whatever, is you have to go back to the the first step towards the sin. And when you can trace it back to say, okay, you know, um, me and my girlfriend, you know, we ended up having sex last night. Let's think about, okay, when, uh, when did we get to the point where we weren't going to like the point of no return, right? And so you kind of trace it back to that point. Okay, it was when we were back, uh, you know, a little tipsy or a little bit more than that in our in my room and it was midnight, you know? And then you could think back to, okay, well, when did we get, uh, when did we make the decision to come back to the room? And it's like, okay, after our friends were kind of dissipating at like 11 o'clock at night and we had a decision point whether we were going to say goodnight or we were going to come, you know, keep hanging out. Okay, well, what led to me making the wrong decision there? Because I should have just said goodnight and gone our separate ways. Okay, well, it was because I drank too much. Well, when, at what point did I drink too much? Oh, it was when I started taking shots. Okay, um, going back, who tempted me to take the shots? Was it me or was it somebody else? And you start to kind of trace things back. And I think this very practical replay and watching a film um, is a certain sense, a certain type of an examine, right? A certain examination of conscience to sit back and say, okay, this is where I started to fall apart. This is where things started to get bad. This is where I really led to me making the mistake, right? When you get down that slippery slope, it's like, when did you, you think about a slide, right? It's like you hit to a certain point where you can't stop anymore, um, where you're just like, you're going down uh, and it's really hard to get back up, right? It's really hard to stop and it's really hard to get back up. Once that momentum kind of hits a tipping point. And so you want to identify where that point is. You can also do that in other people's lives. And it doesn't mean um, you have to do it in other people's lives and your friends or whatever. That can be helpful. But you especially want to do it in scripture. I think it's really helpful to get to this point and just kind of dive deep and not not read this in a so often we can read this in like a judgmental way where we say, you know, oh, the apostles were so dumb. St. Peter was so weak for denying Christ and all these different things. And it's like, well, let's take a second, let's have some humility and actually see ourselves in the story and see how this applies to the way we sin and we say no to God and we deny Christ. You know, we abandon Christ. We um, give him over to the Romans on a daily basis. And so let's learn from the way they did it and how they bounced back from it so we can kind of apply some of that to our own lives. All right, so getting back to it here. David's still trying to cover up his sin. Uriah is a savage. He won't go home and sleep with his wife. And so David's pissed off. And so he's like, I got to finish this off. I got to take care of this. So picking back up in verse 14 of chapter 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was also slain. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Amalek, the son of Jerabsheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone upon him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. So he basically fills them in, right? I'm not going to go through all this. Um, you can think, I mean, think about how crazy this is. So he basically makes a bad war move in order just to get this guy to die. I also think, like, think of how savage and terrible this is, like how cold this is. This is the guy that God describes as a man after his own heart. That's how he describes David to the prophet Samuel years before this. And think about this, this chosen one of God, um, you know, Jesus is called the son of David. This is what this guy did. He sat there and he killed Uriah. And not only did he have him killed, but he had him, he delivered his own death note. Think about that. Think how cold that is. I mean, it's some gangster stuff right there. It's some mafia stuff. You're going to kill my man? You're going to have him deliver his own death note? 
you're going to pack it in his bag and have him give it to the general. And Uriah is such a good dude. You know he's not peeking, right? So he's not going to look at it. It's wild, man. So then, uh, you know, Joab's like, David's going to be tripping when you tell him this because this was like a bad battle to choose to fight. He's like, but tell him his consolation is that Uriah is dead. And so it says when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she made lamentation for her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this is something I think is really interesting. This gets into the the part of repentance, right? And we often don't realize enough that the things we do either please or displease the Lord. I think in this modern Christianity that's so soft and nice and gentle, we don't like to think of the fact that, like, we do things that displease the Lord. And sometimes that enkindle anger and wrath from the Lord. Because we've forgotten that our decisions impact um, and hurt God. They don't just hurt our relationship with God. They hurt God himself. They cause him pain. The most obvious example of this being the cross, right? Like Jesus had to go to the cross for things like this. As well as our little even like venial sins, right? Because even venial sins um, can would have been would have needed redemption. But I think it's really powerful to think about that. The, the thing that... The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Even a sentence like that, it's interesting to think about, like, why did they feel the need to include that, right? Like, isn't this obvious? This is murder and adultery. Like, even, like, Christ hasn't come yet and, like, raised the moral law, right? But we still know that even back then, even the Jews knew that murder and adultery was wrong. So it's like, it's obvious that what he did displeased the Lord. That should be very apparent. But Nathan basically, or but David basically feels like, um, yeah, it's all taken care of. Now he's got Bathsheba. She gave birth to a son. Life is pretty much good. Um, he's like, I've kind of gotten away with it. And I think there's something very interesting there, as well. That David, there's no signs or story of David repenting after you know, um, kind of self-provoked. But we're going to hear a little bit more now about. Um, how David came to to realizing he needed repentance. So now going on, chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have slain him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Uriah, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, 
the Lord has also the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan departed. Man, think of how deep that story is. I always love that line, you are the man, or a lot of other interpretations will have it as, that man is you. And think about this, going back to what I said, right? David didn't repent before this. David had no repentance. He showed no signs of remorse. He just goes about living his life. Now, we don't get all the details, right? But Nathan comes to David and and gives him this beautiful story, right? And um, it's amazing how parables really work that way. Parables have a great way of allowing us to be objective, right? Because if if Nathan had just come to David and said, well, I heard what you did. He might deny it. He might argue, whatever. But that's not that's not what happened, right? That's not how he rolls. Nathan comes up and he's like, let me tell you a story. Let me get your, your judgment on something. You're the king. You decide. Let me tell you this little tale. And David's like, I'm losing my mind. He's like, this is so ridiculous. How could this guy do something so awful? And Nathan's like, you did this. And David's very convicted, obviously, by that. And so I love also, I just I just saw this really good reel recently that talked about how the love of the father is different than the love of the mother. And a mother's love, this, this guy described it basically, I'm just kind of paraphrasing what he said. He said, a mother's love is very coddling, right? Like you fall and it's like, oh, come here. I'm sorry that happened. And they kind of comfort you. You fall again, you fall again, you fall again. And they comfort you, they comfort you, they comfort you. And it's like, his example is like, and the dad's like, yo, stop falling. Like, stop, stop doing that. Like you keep hurting yourself. Stop doing the same things that are hurting yourself, right? Like a dad will comfort you, but also challenge you to like, be better. Stop, stop being stupid. And I often point this out because I, I hate when I hear in men's conferences, I use this example and tell the story a lot where I was at a men's conference um, here in Denver back in March. And this guy told this story that was like, you know, if you had a son and he continued to fall as he was trying to learn how to walk, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't make fun of him. You wouldn't be angry with him. You wouldn't, you know, laugh in his face because he's struggling to learn how to walk. And so God, the father does the same with you as you're learning to, you know, be a man and be a father and you, you fall and you're struggling to walk. He doesn't, he doesn't mock you. He loves you and he, he comforts you. And that's good and true. But what I say is you're not supposed to be struggling to walk forever. Right. If we're thinking, if we're thinking about what that really applies to, right. The analogy of walking in the spiritual life, that's like getting to mass on Sunday. It's like a very short daily prayer. It's like knowing how to pray the rosary and, and doing it sometimes with your family or talking about spiritual things in the home, right? Like some of the basic things. I'm not supposed to be struggling to walk forever. And I think in times when we think God only has that kind of coddling motherly love, this nice Jesus we like to present to the world, we can see reality here with things like this. And I think that things like this are really helpful for that because you get to see how God speaks back to David. And when you see how God speaks back to David, you start to realize like, wow, God's God's kind of a savage. <laughs> you know, God's kind of cold. Um, and not, not cold as in like cold hearted, but like, he's just, he's just, he's tough on you when you've done something that's really wrong and that's okay. That can be a good thing. That's fatherly love. All right. Cause listen to this. Listen to how the Lord says, he said, thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is what Nathan says to him. He goes through all this stuff. He's like, I anointed you King. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were little, too little for you, I would have given you more. He's like, but that wasn't enough for you. And man, I mean, like, have you ever had a moment like that with God? I remember my first time really like just going to confession or having even just like a, a disciple challenge me to be like, dude, God has done a lot for you. You got to you. You have to pray. It's a mortal sin for you not to have a substantial prayer time every day. This is when I was in college. And it was just like very easy and, and doable with my schedule. And I was still just, you know, find time to blow it off. Or and think about think about your prayer time 
especially when you're in college, but I think just kind of generally in your life, right? Like you think about work or other moments in your life where you just spend an extra like 15, 20 minutes just BSing with somebody. And that's 15, 20 minutes you could have spent in the chapel. And it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, military rigid with your schedule all the time, but sometimes it's just little sacrifices you choose to spend with somebody else or with something else. And you give that time to something else or someone else instead of God. And um, I, I think challenges like this, you get to hear, this is how God spoke to David. This is how the father was speaking to his son. And we think sometimes that, you know, you have this rise of like gentle parenting and all these things where it's like, you would never do something like this, right? You would never make your child feel guilty or any negative emotions. And it's like, King David's like, or I mean, God to King David is just like getting into him, digging into him. And this is that fatherly love. And I think that we forget that God can be like this. You know, um, if we get to God, the father is not just uh, a little genie in heaven that just wants to give you what you want. You know, he does give us what we want a lot of the time. He always gives us what we need, but we also have to respond to that. And he's he's expressing his disappointment. This is that classic, like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And he's just getting in David's ass, and David is like, man, you know, he finally responds, and he's he's open about it. He doesn't make excuses at this point. You can't make excuses to God. You know, a lot of times I think in our lives we make excuses to everybody else. We can make excuses to ourselves. But you can't you can't make excuses to God. You're not going to hustle God into thinking that um, you didn't do what you did. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, so you shall not die. So in a certain sense, he forgives him. But you get to hear like, he's like, I have sinned against the Lord. You have to make that commitment. You have to make that confession. And so David does that. Also interesting here that he says, he talks about in the third person, I have sinned against the Lord. Um, and uh, he says it to Nathan, the representative of the Lord, right? The God's prophet, which is also really interesting. Um, but yeah, I've sinned against the Lord. And so you have this moment, right? Where he kind of becomes honest and he says that you're, you know, he tells him, he's like, your son is going to die. And think about that, how tough that is. He goes from this moment of feeling like he got away with it and all this kind of stuff. And he forgot that the Lord is always watching, right? No matter what you do in, in the darkness, and this is kind of what God gets into, whatever is done in the dark will be revealed in the light. And so we have to remember this. We're not just called to struggle with, with these types of things forever, right? We're not called. God, God expects something from us. He expects us to grow and to actually be holy and to live a holy life. And so I think that's really, um, really profound. And so it says, you know, and David struck, or and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the ground. And the elders of his house stood bef- beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So they literally thought, like, he might kill himself. They're like, he fasted and wouldn't eat when the child was alive. Like, now he's died. Like, how much more, you know, they're watching him lament and freak out while the child's just sick. They're like, if we go and tell him that his son has died, he's going to lose his mind. He might even hurt himself. And David, it says that, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. And he said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when they asked, they set food before him and he ate. Or when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Super, super interesting. So I love, there's a lot there that's really good. I think, um, you know, 
David expected that the child was going to die because Nathan told him. He he foretold that the child was going to die. But David still held out hope. I think it's really interesting that David still knew that he served a God that was merciful and loving and powerful. And so he said, you know, maybe if I repent, the Lord will forgive me and spare my son. If I repent of this thing that I've done, there is a chance that God will forgive me and remove the punishment that he's uh, placed upon me. And God chose not to do that. And David kind of recognizes like, I feel like in a sense, he recognized what he deserved. David's like, I deserve to die. And here my son's going to die. And this is my punishment. And maybe in a sense, David realized that God knew this was a greater punishment than to kill David was to kill his son, to take his son from him. And I can feel that, you know, if I had done something and, and my son was going to die rather than me, that's much more painful um, to think about his life being ended because of my shortcomings and my sins. That's incredibly painful um, to think of the mourning that inflicts upon the, the mother, this wife, this new wife of yours. You already killed her husband. Now you're killing her son. Um, it, it's, it's really, it's incredibly tough to think about. But there's something beautiful there that he arose, he washed and anointed himself, and he went and worshiped the Lord. Recognizing unlike many of us, because we're so entitled and we think we deserve good things. And and I think there's this beautiful reality, you know, this imitation of Christ reality here that we deserve death. And so when we we never get to have experiences like this, right? Because when we go to confession, we just are, are given typically a very light penance and we go and do that and we go about our lives. But David here has a very unique experience in that he is given this opportunity to see, okay, um, I have been very sinful. I've done a lot of wrong. And now I am, I have to deal with that. I have to face the consequences um, that are very serious. They're very dire. So he had to like live with the actual consequences of his sin in a very painful and real tangible way. But a lot of us, we, you know, we go say three Hail Marys, we kind of go about our lives, but there's times where you do have practical uh, repercussions, right? If you commit adultery, um, if you uh, lie to somebody, if you whatever it might be, when you sin, a lot of times you do, God does, you know, forgive you of the eternal consequences of that in confession, but he still allows us to deal with the near-term consequences of our sins. And so that's a, that's a real aspect of, um, yeah, just of the Christian life that God allows us to still kind of deal with the, the repercussions of our sins. And so very interesting there, I think, but something beautiful and kind of Job-like that David gets up, realizes he deserves this, unlike kind of unlike Job. Job just was it was just thrust upon him. But sometimes God chooses suffering for us. And I think it's in those moments that we realize that that David could have, you know, he could have gotten mad at God. He could have said, Lord, you know, I sinned. You shouldn't have killed my son. This was wrong. I'm not going to serve you anymore. But he doesn't do that. Instead he says, Man, I have sinned against the Lord. I had prayed and hoped that God would forgive my sin and not you know, give me this this punishment, but he didn't. And so now I have to go on with my life. And so I think it's a really powerful story, man. I think of my own life, I had sins like that. I had sins of, um, you know, some of my most painful sins, especially struggling with sexual sin, serious sexual sin. Um, once I had had my conversion, it was just so much more painful. And I felt like I really related to David in the story because this is David post-conversion, right? Like David is bought in for the Lord. He is a servant of the Lord. He's praying to God. He's got radical trust, radical faith. And you can see that when he goes to fight Goliath and he's um, slaying lions and bears and when he's a shepherd and he's going out to war and the Lord is with him and inspiring him and holding him up and giving him all of these things. And he's obviously close to God. He's a man after the Lord's own heart as God described him. And so to see him now turn around and it's like he's struggling with all this stuff, it's, it's really powerful. You see him fall in this major, major way. And it should give us hope because he does repent and return to the Lord because there is no sin that God will not forgive, even if there's some pain in the repercussions of that sin. And so we recognize this and we see this in the life of David. And it's a beautiful and awesome thing that we get to see this and we get to have this example. But I just want to close this in prayer with Psalm 51. This is what leads us up to Psalm 51. Um, and it says, uh, in, in this Bible here, it says a Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet came to him 
after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so this is right around this time that King David wrote this prayer. And I I memorized it when I was in college. I only remember part of it now, kind of my two favorite portions of it. There's like three stanzas in, in each portion that I have memorized now, but um, it's super powerful. And I think I've, I've prayed this almost after every act of contrition. Um, I've prayed this prayer and I've prayed it even when I haven't sinned in a major way. Um, but after confession or whatever, I like to pray it or before. And it's just a beautiful prayer. And I think that it's important for us to remember that we have to repent. That again, going back to the the um, testimony story, right? Whether you've sinned in major ways, you've sinned in small ways, it's important to recognize that we all need repentance. We all need to come back to God because we've fallen away and we've denied the Lord. And um, yeah, this is something that just has become more real to me recently too. I had a conversation with a friend not too long ago and we were talking about the good thief, St. Dismas is his name. The thief, you know, two thieves were crucified on either side of Jesus, one on each side. And one mocked him, the other repented and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, really beautiful. And he, you know, Jesus tells him today, you will be with me in paradise. And that guy's a saint, St. Dismas. And um, really cool. But it is frustrating sometimes for those of us who are you know, wrestling with God throughout our lives and fighting and striving to live holy lives and getting up from mass on Sunday, doing all these things to think of people who convert on their deathbed and end up in the same place as us. I think when you dive into, you know, more Catholic spirituality, St. Teresa of Avila and some of those things, you realize that the reward in heaven is not the same um, necessarily, but you do avoid hell still. And there's plenty of other parables. You think about the parable of the, um, the workers in the vineyard, right? Where Jesus tells the story of um, a guy who owns a vineyard and he goes out in the morning and midday and afternoon and evening to get people to work for him. And he brings those who work the least amount of time in first and the people who are coming later to get paid at the end, they've been working all day and they're seeing him pay a full day's wages to the people who started at the end of the day. And he's like, they're like, man, we're going to get paid a lot. So he's paying the guys who only worked an hour. Um, you know, a day's wage, surely he's going to pay us more. And, and he only pays them the day's wage. And they say, well, we've been working all day. And he's like, didn't we agree on a day's wage? And they're like, yes. And he's like, well, can I be generous with my money if I want to be? And God can be generous with his mercy if he wants to be. We shouldn't be upset with that. One thing I, I often say or think about is that we, we're not going to get into heaven and see somebody who's there and be mad about it, right? Purgatory is going to, either purgatory is going to work that out of you or you're going to work it out now. But you might as well come to understand that you know, you, I, I've, I've been this person to other people where I show up to daily mass or to mass or retreats or whatever. And people are mad that I'm there because they're like, this guy's too sinful. How is he here? Back when I was in high school and college, especially. And even now I'll rarely, but sometimes get really nasty messages from people as I share the gospel, as I um, share my, my views and opinions on things and try to do so from a place of faith and reason. Um, you really nasty messages of people of like, oh, you used to use women in college or high school, or you did this or that, or, and it's like you're not going to get to heaven and be mad that I'm there, um, because again, and I can't get to heaven and be mad that anybody else is there, whether it be somebody in my family, friends, enemies, whatever. Either I'm going to work that out now, or I'm going to work it out, or God's going to work it out of me in purgatory. But we're not going to have that. We have to understand that we all need repentance. We have all sinned in major ways. And in a certain sense, we're all David. And God could look at each one of us when we sin in these big ways um, and, and say to us, I've given you so much. I gave you the grace of baptism, of confirmation. You have the sacrament of reconciliation of the Eucharist. And you don't go to Mass every day, even though you could. You don't pray as much as you could. You don't go to adoration and spend time with me like you could. And so, yeah, you can make all these excuses and reasons and um, give all these, you know, boohoo stories about why you were so tempted and weak and why you fell into your sin and how it's not fair or whatever. You can Adam and Eve this thing, right? Where you just start to explain, oh, it was her fault. And you put her here, God, and all this kind of stuff. Or you can be David. And when it's, it's come to the light, just say, I've sinned against the Lord. And not try to defend yourself, but rather repent 
and fast and pray and offer up serious penance for your sins um, so that you can be redeemed, so we can be transformed, so we can become holy. So let's dive into how David prays a prayer of repentance. Again, this is Psalm 51. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your merciful love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done that which is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. Open, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you take no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I love one of my favorite parts there. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's one of my favorite prayers. I try to pray it every day. And I think we need to pray with things like this more and more often. Because again, you know, those are beautiful words and beautiful things to pray as we repent to God and ask for his forgiveness of our sins. But then I think there's two other things I just want to highlight really quickly in here as we close up, as we wrap up for today. Um, The first is, that, that God loves a, a broken and contrite heart. That this idea that you can presume God's forgiveness, it's crazy. And I remember, as I told you before, um, in my story, in my testimony, there was times where I was sinning, sexual sin, whatever it was, and I was just um, living my life, right? Like I wasn't repenting. I didn't feel bad about it. I would go, even if I went to confession, I, w- I didn't really feel bad about it. But as I started to grow closer to the Lord, as I started to grow closer to God, I started to actually feel sorrow for my sins, and that changed my life. I started to be like, hey, I should actually feel bad about this. I I love God so much that I feel bad about sinning like this. I feel bad about doing the things He's asking me to not do. I feel bad about not doing the things He is asking me to do. And I think there's something beautiful to that, that we should ask God to feel, right? We always talk about our feelings and feeling our emotions, all this shit, and then we sit here and say, oh, but I shouldn't feel bad if I sin. I shouldn't feel, God doesn't want you to feel guilty or anything like that. I think that's, I think that's nonsense. I think that's bullshit. I think it's bullshit that we tell people that guilt is a bad thing. This idea that Catholic guilt, Catholic guilt. It's like, you should feel guilty if you skip mass on Sunday. There's no, yeah, if you're, if you're deathly sick or whatever, there's a good times to not go um, in, in very rare circumstances. But generally speaking, you should feel bad if you're not going to mass on Sunday. You should feel bad if you're half-assing it in your faith. That's the whole point of all of this, right? Is for us to become saints and to be holy. So if we're just if we're going through life and, and doing everything else, giving giving our fitness or our jobs or our relationship our all, but we're not giving God our, our all, it doesn't make any sense. And I think part of giving your all brings me to my second point here that I love in Psalm one fifty or Psalm fifty one. There is no Psalm one fifty one. Fun fact, but in Psalm fifty one, he says. 
oh, oh, um, deliver me from blood guilt, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Um, and before that, I, I missed the the part that he actually first starts talking about that. He says, after my part that I just said that I love, restore me to the joy of your salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. How many of us really come like that? How many of us come to confession and say, you know, we, we say all the time, like, God, if you save me from this, or if you don't do this, or you prevent this, I'll, I'll serve you for the rest of my life, right? How many of us say, God, in, in gratitude for you forgiving me of my sins, in gratitude for the healing that you've given me, I'm going to tell other people about your healing ways. I'm going to tell other people about your goodness. I'm going to actually evangelize. It blows my mind to think about how many Christians go through their whole lives and don't impact anybody else's faith journey in 75 years of living. I know people in my life now who go to church. And I'm like, I genuinely don't know if you've ever actually led anybody closer to God. And think about, I'm just trying to break, get a little bit over breaking even, right? I think about my own life, how many people I led away from God. And now I'm just trying to be like, man, how can I try to lead more people closer to God? Right? But we don't like to think about things in terms like that. We don't think about, you know, everything is just, it, grace is freely given, salvation is freely given. And we don't have to do anything. This is this divorce from faith and works. We don't realize that we're actually called to, to do things. God actually wants laborers in the vineyard. Read Matthew chapter 9 and read Matthew chapter 10. God needs laborers in the vineyard. He wants us to be actively involved in our own salvation. St. Paul says to continue to work out your own salvation with the Lord. St. James, or... um. Yeah, St. James tells us that faith without works is dead. So you think about this. King David ties in his repentance and says, Lord, if you forgive me of the sin, I will teach other people your ways and sinners will come back to you because I'm going to tell them about your goodness. I'm going to tell them about your goodness. And I see this in, you know, all the time, different opportunities, different ministry things I've done where people get the opportunity to share their testimony. They won't do it. And I'm like, you can't go your whole life without not sharing your testimony. It doesn't work that way. You can you can say, I don't want to do it in front of a crowd, whatever, fine. If that's what you feel like you're not being called to share it, then fine. But if you're just doing that out of fear or discomfort, that's not good. You can't go your whole life and not tell people the journey and experience you've had of the Lord. But we have this in so many young Catholics today where we just we just want to take, we just want to receive, we don't want to give. And God says, and, and David shows us, that God says, I, I'm, I came here so that you might have life. You might have it in abundance, right? You might have it full. But he also says, go and make disciples. And so you don't get to have one without the other. That's not what we believe. That's not what the church teaches. And this goes back to even the Old Testament. King David is a great example of that for us. So that was your Bible study for today. I hope you enjoyed it, man. It was fun going through that with you guys. Um, encourage you to join us, as always, on localseekingus.com if you want to um, become a supporter, you want to learn more, you want to get some more of this content. I've been releasing this series on uh, is, healthcare, is Healthcare a Human Right? I've been talking about that series for a long time, and now those articles are finally up on Locals. Um, you'll see videos like this are released about a week and a half early on Locals. Um, and so I encourage you to do that. If you haven't left us a podcast review, I'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. I get random one-star reviews because people hate some of the truth and things that I share. And so would really be grateful if you'd go leave us just a quick five-star review, take just a minute or two to do that, um, and subscribe to our, our YouTube channel. So you can now watch these videos on YouTube. Um, I have my my new friend, Celine, is helping me out with video editing. And so we'll be continuously working to upgrade that and upgrade the studio. And as you can see, I'm always testing different setups and things like that. So subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, because we're going to be breaking down some of these longer videos into short um, short messages and shorter videos on there as well. So Really excited for that, excited for all that God's doing through Seeking Excellence, excited for all that God is doing in your life, and it's blessed. It's a blessing for me to get to be even just a small part of that. So thank you for tuning in today. I hope that you enjoyed this. God bless you, and be your best. Music.